0: Our scripture reading this evening, we turn to the second to the last book in the Bible, to the book of Jude. Currently in my own congregation, I'm preaching a series through the book of Jude. And tonight we consider verses 20 and 21 and taking that as our text for our preparatory sermon. But let's read... Let's read this entire epistle of Jude, the 25 verses. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers, defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words Having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy through the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word and the text tonight verse verses 20 and 21 but ye beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith praying in the holy ghost keep yourselves in the love of god looking for the mercy of our lord jesus christ unto eternal life beloved congregation in our lord jesus christ the text is here in the conclusion of the epistle. Jude is is starting to wrap things up in these latter verses and to bring this short epistle to a close. Jude has already issued his warning to the church about certain men who have crept into the church unawares. And he's described their condition, their spiritual condition as... As ungodly, he's likened these evil men who have crept into the church and compared them in the course of this epistle of Jude, comparing them to Cain and and Balaam and Korah, who are all rebellious, who all despised God. And Jude has shown the judgment that awaits them, even with the prophecy of Enoch, that the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon the ungodly. And now in these final verses, Jude addresses the church in, in, in a positive way. If all of the exhortations thus far in the book of Jude, earlier in the book of Jude, were from a negative point of view, to watch out for these men, don't emulate these ungodly men, don't tolerate their presence in the church. And now Jude proceeds to give positive exhortations, which already began a few verses earlier in verse 17. Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that exactly this would happen, that ungodly men would rise up in the last days and do these things, so don't be unduly alarmed when you see this happening as if this is an absence of God's love for you, but remember the words of the apostles. This is according to the word of God. And then in the verses before us, we have the climax of that positive exhortation to keep yourselves in the love of God so that whatever your fears may be as you encounter encounter these evil men and their persuasive arguments, whatever concerns you may have for the welfare of your family and for the welfare of the church, Keep yourselves in the love of God, all the while looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And that becomes our calling to, this week of uh, self-examination, that we be those kinds of people who are close to Scripture and who look at there at verses 20 and 21, that we build ourselves up in our most holy faith, that we pray in the Holy Ghost. And that we look for that mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And that we will have a taste of that even next Sunday as we come to the table of the Lord. The theme of the sermon tonight, keeping ourselves in the love of God. Let's look what that means. Secondly, the manner. How do we do that? And finally, the comfort. Keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, that word keep in the text is an imperative. That means it's a command. It's a command that comes to you and to me. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Are you comfortable with that command? Keep yourselves in the love of God because for all our emphasis on the sovereignty of God to love us, to keep us, and to preserve us. And here is a text that very clearly states, now this is your duty. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now maybe... That kind of command rubs us the wrong way because we know that the enemies of the gospel are always using texts like these and twisting them and distorting them to teach something that is not in the Bible, to teach a kind of works righteousness, that we have to do something to earn our salvation or teaching that God showers down his his love upon us but now it remains our responsibility altogether apart from the grace of God. But we have to remain in that position of God's grace and, and we, we mustn't remove our position in God's grace. We have to remain preserved in God's grace by our own strength. Or perhaps we might be uncomfortable with a command like this simply because we don't know how to answer. And there might be other commands in Scripture that we are very comfortable with. Love God, love the neighbor, and and do those things that the Word of God commands and, and keep all of God's good commandments. But this command is a bit different, isn't it? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And that might be hard for us because we know that we don't preserve ourselves in this life. God preserves us. And yet the text is addressing us that here is your duty. This is something that you must be busy in. This is something that you must be active in. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, because we might be uncomfortable with a text like this, let's... Set our minds at ease right away. This text breathes of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. Because the moment you even mention the love of God, you're talking about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God's love for us, from all eternity, and so that this verse, it, it doesn't at all teach that we earn something or we merit something with God. And all you have to do is look at those closing verses, that closing doxology, 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. We don't keep ourselves from falling. By ourselves, we would. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And so there is no doubt in our minds at all that Jehovah God, he is the one who keeps us. Jehovah God, he is the one who preserves us. Jehovah God, he is the one who makes sure And that he makes sure with all the power of the Almighty God that we remain the objects of God's love always and forevermore, and that that love will never be taken away. God is sovereign, God keeps us, God preserves us. Now let's look at the words of the text. Let's examine these words. The controlling idea, the controlling phrase in the text is that command that's given. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And all of those other clauses, the other phrases in verse 20 and at the end of verse 21 are subordinate to that main idea. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, let's start first with the love of God and find out what we are to keep ourselves in, to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that's something that's wonderful. That's something that's amazing. But now even we might ask the first question, is this text speaking about our love for God? Or is it speaking about God's love for us? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And I suppose that there could be a case made that this is speaking about our love for God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep on loving God. Don't doubt His mercy when times are difficult. Don't doubt His grace when fears arise. And don't doubt his attitude of favor and blessing. Keep loving God. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. And though that would be a legitimate way to understand that phrase, I believe, however, the context leads us the other way. To understand that phrase, keep yourselves in the love of God. Not not our love for God... Though it's true, we do love God dearly, but rather God's love for us. Because notice how the text begins, but ye beloved, beloved, which means you are the objects of God's love. And then that's verse 17 as well, but beloved. And then even if you go all the way back to the beginning of the epistle in verse 3, beloved, beloved when I gave all diligence to write unto you so that in this short epistle, Jude is speaking to the church of Jesus Christ who is the object of God's love. And it's no different here in verse 21. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. And this is God's love for us. Well, what is that love of God for us? In the first place, that love of God for us is is God viewing us as his precious possession. Because you don't love something that you're not close to. You don't love something that you don't have a deep bond and connection with. You don't love something that can be easily discarded and replaced with something else. That's not God's view towards us, but so precious is God's people to him that he calls them, to use the words of Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, that God calls his people the apple of my eye. And that's a figure of speech that expresses the deep. Eternal and abiding love that God has for His people. So does He love them, so precious are they to Him that God refers to His people, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, as the apple of my eye. And then in the second place, that love of God is not only an attitude. That God has, but in his mercy, he actually does something for us. So that in his love for us and his mercy all our life long, God then cares for us. He guides us. He preserves us. He leads us through this earthly sojourn. He gives unto us everything that we need all the needs for the body, all the needs for the soul in exactly the right quantity at exactly the right time, and he will bring us to glory. We are the objects of the love of God, precious in his sight. God loves his people. And so great is God's love that he pours out his love upon us. It's not that God gives us a little trickle of his love and a little taste, but God pours out his love upon us. That's what scripture says. Romans chapter 5 verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed for the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the holy ghost. And when the, that love of God is shed abroad, or as we can say, as that love of God is poured out, that means that we really become, as it were, drenched in the love of God. And you can't go anywhere in the life of the church without seeing that love and hearing that love and tasting that love and that goodness that God has for his people. It's something like the home or the bedroom of a loved one that the Lord has taken away from us. It might be a a parent or a grandparent or it might even, even be a child. And when we finally bring ourselves to go into that bedroom and to start cleaning things up, we are overwhelmed. Why? Because that room and that house, that that area is simply drenched with the memories of our loved one. And we can't go anywhere in that house without being reminded of our loved one. Every nook and cranny is saturated with memory upon memory. So that whether we start packing up the clothes or the books and papers or we open up the closet, we're, we're overwhelmed with the memory of our loved one. Well, that's the way the love of God fills the church. And you can't go anywhere in the church without coming up against that beautiful, sweet love of God. And that's true of every word that's spoken from the pulpit. Even in this church, every word is a precious word of love from your Heavenly Father to you. Even those admonitions, even those rebukes, even those words that make us squirm in our seats and we wonder if the minister knows what we are thinking and how God gave him those words to speak, pointed directly at me. And those are words of love from our Heavenly Father to us. Words to keep us on the straight and narrow. And as soon as we say that the church of Jesus Christ then is is drenched in the love of God, that's only the case because God views the church through his only begotten son. You see, we're, we're the objects of God's love, but not in the absence of Jesus Christ. But through Jesus Christ we become the objects of God's love. In John 10 verse 17, therefore doth my father love me, Jesus says, because I laid down my life that I might take it again. And so first, wherever you find that love of God, first you find the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the church is where you find the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere. So that no matter where we go in the church, we see the death of the Lord for us. Every word of the gospel, every sermon that's preached, Jesus says, search the scriptures for they are they which testify of me. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I seek to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that every word that's spoken, and even for that matter, all of the history in the Old Testament, which is a history that directs us to Jesus Christ, to the coming of the Messiah and of God's faithfulness in bringing his Son into our flesh. But everywhere in the church, we see the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true of the sacraments as well. There we stand, as it were, before The cross of Calvary next Sunday when we come to the Lord's Supper, what are we going to see with our eyes? We see bread and wine, but with the spiritual eyes of faith, we see Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the object of God's love. And we are the objects of the love of Christ. We have been redeemed and purchased so that we belong to him and all of the above. All right, that's the love of God for his church. And so great was the love of God that he withheld not his only begotten son for us men and for our salvation. And now the command to the church is, keep yourselves in that love of God for you. What does that mean? It means this. Keep yourselves in the experience of that love and joy uh, of God's love for you. Because we know that God's love for us never changes, having been loved by God, we will always be loved and cherished by him. But from our point of view, from our point of view, it's possible that our experience of his love changes. And that's something that we all know by experience. We've had that in our lives. Times when we look back and when we had those good moments in life. Times when we were especially close to our Heavenly Father and it was as if we were like, like Adam and Enoch of old who, who walked with God and there are times when in our lives we have as it were walked with God and we have felt his nearness and his presence and his warm embrace and those are times in love that we look back and we, we cherish those times. They're very close to us. But there are other times When we don't feel God's love like we once did. When we impenitently walk in sin. When we knowingly sin against God's good commandments. When the chastisements of God come upon us. And it might be one affliction after another affliction after another affliction And then perhaps the doubts begin to creep in and and we don't experience the love of God like we had in the past. And so the command is keep yourselves in God's love by, by keeping yourselves in that experience of God's love. And now by the very fact that God gives this commandment, it tells us how very bad the situation was back in Jude's day when they receive this word of God from Jude. Here in the book of Jude, we find that wicked men had crept into the church. They were changing the truth of God into a lie. They were twisting the doctrine of God's grace and saying, God's grace means that you may do whatever you want and live whatever kind of a way you want. They themselves led wicked lifestyles and they were so sneaky. They were so subtle, so cunning, so persuasive. And the temptation for God's people was this. In light of those wicked men who had crept into the church, for God's people the temptation was despair of God's love. What becomes of us now? What will become of our children who live in this kind of a church, who, who are filled with these wicked men who have crept in unawares? What will happen to the church of Jesus Christ? Will God continue to pour out his love upon us, or will we now become the objects of God's wrath and hatred? the word of God comes to the church in Jude's day, don't despair. Don't despair because of the attacks of the enemy. Don't become defeated when you think of the potential damage that, that these men might do. And don't let your assurance of God's love for you come into question. But Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the experience of that love so that you live in the conscious knowledge of God's overflowing and abundant love for you. And that's the same temptation that comes to us. So many ways the devil would come to us and would sow doubt in our hearts. So many ways the devil would come and try to convince us and try to convince you and me that God is not really with you. God does not really care about you. God does not love you after all. Why would all of these difficult things be placed in your life? And so the devil comes to tempt us and that we would think that God does not Really love me. So the people of God need to to hear this encouragement, and this encouragement that even comes in the form of a command, Beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. And now how do we do that? What's the way in which we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God well, let's start off this way. The only possibility for keeping ourselves in God's love is if God will keep us in his love and God will keep us in the experience of his love. It's God's work of keeping us in his love because after all, he is sovereign and he is all powerful. In fact, the text itself indicates the sovereignty of God in keeping us in so many different ways, and it might not be obvious right away when we glance at the text, but the text again, as I said earlier, breathes of that sovereignty of God, so that in the very opening address of the text, beloved, in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, but beloved. Well, the question is, how can we even be addressed as beloved? How do we come to be put into that position that God says to my church, I love you, you are my beloved, but because of God's sovereignty in choosing his people from all eternity as the objects of his love. And then verse 20, the people of God are addressed, but ye... But So that there's a contrast going on. A contrast between who? Well, a contrast between those wicked men who have crept into the church. Wicked men who have of old been ordained to that condemnation. Who behave themselves like wicked Cain and Balaam of the past. Who, like those angels who have left their first estate, are reserved unto the blackness of darkness forever as opposed to those who are the objects of God's hatred and just judgment, but ye. How do we come to be addressed over here as but ye? But because we are the objects of God's love by a sovereign choosing God. And then even further, the text calls us to pray in the Holy Spirit. And that really points us to the only power in this life by which we are preserved in God's love. It's the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ given to us, poured out upon us so that in fact we are preserved. The text points us to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again we ask how does it come that there is such a thing as the mercy of Jesus Christ for us? And the answer is because of the sovereignty of God in making us the objects of his mercy. And the text mentions eternal life. You and I, we have that great hope and consolation of eternal life. How does that come to be? Because God is sovereign. And he's put that hope in our hearts. And he gives us to know that in fact eternal life awaits us because of his sovereignty, giving us to Jesus Christ. And and so the sovereignty of God is written large all over this text. The only possibility for keeping ourselves in the love of God is that God first loves us and keeps us in his sovereign elect love. But we know this too, that our God is a God of means. God sovereignly keeps us in his love by making us active in keeping ourselves in that love. We're not afraid to say that. We're not afraid to put it that way. That doesn't mean that our activity is the reason we remain in God's love. Always and everywhere, that remains God's work. And one of the commentators expressed it this way. The imperative... Of ethical action, which is the command to us, keep yourselves in the love of God. The imperative of ethical action is rooted within the indicative of God's act and is part of God's gracious act. And to that we say that's true. That's true, which is simply another way of saying that God is pleased to keep us in his love, but in the way of sovereignly moving us so that we willingly and obediently walk in the way that's commanded here. And this is the way that we are to keep ourselves in the experience of God's love. Now the text is specific. It points to us the manner how we are to do that. In the first place, in verse 20, but ye beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now it's giving us the steps. It's giving us what it ought to look like in our lives when we keep ourselves in the love of God. This is how it ought to look like, that we build ourselves up on our most holy faith. And that word faith, as used here in verse 20, is the same word that's used in verse 3, and we understand it in the same way. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. The faith meaning the sacred deposit of truth that God has given to us. The word of truth, the sacred scriptures. Contend for the faith and and build yourselves up in that most holy faith. And, And when we're called to build ourselves up in it, it means to be busy in the word of God. Remember, this is the means that God uses to keep us in the experience of his love. And the very simplest way to build yourself up in the faith is simply to take the faith, to take the sacred deposit of truth, to take it in your hands and to read it, to read it. Build yourselves up in the faith. You can read a little section. You can read a long section. But you read the Bible. You mothers can read the Bible at home in caring for the children. You fathers traveling on the road can keep a Bible in the vehicle in the glove compartment. And at opportune times, you take the Bible out and you read the Bible. Such is the power of the Word of God that you will be changed. Believing what you read, the Holy Spirit will once more assure you of God's love for you. And further, be busy with God's word, not only in your private devotions, but be busy with the word of God in the public worship of Jehovah's name, so that here in God's house we, we hear the word of God, It's expounded to us. And we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ all the more. And and we long all the more for the hope of heaven to see our Savior face to face. God uses the preaching mightily so that we are strengthened and built up in the faith. So that in the first place, keeping ourselves in the love of God, and it looks like this, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And then in the second place, the text speaks about praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Well, prayer, that's another means of grace. God uses prayer to strengthen us in our faith. And that's good for us then. After we've built ourselves up by reading the Bible, it's good then to follow that up quickly with prayer. That's what, that's what the inspired psalmist David did. In Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord in prayer. He prayed to God. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So that prayer was That means of grace for the psalmist, so that he knew the love of God for him. Pray. But now pray in the Holy Ghost. Pray in the Holy Ghost. And that means that we pray in conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Knowing that apart from the Spirit even stirring us up to pray... We would not even pray in the first place. Pray in conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit, knowing that the Holy Spirit takes our imperfect and weak prayers and fills in what's missing and fills in what's lacking and brings now that perfected prayer to the Father. And that's one of the fears that we often have. I do as a minister. Am I praying enough? Congregational prayers, am I praying sufficiently for all of the needs of God's people? And when we as fathers pray around the dinner table, am I bringing all of the needs of this family before Jehovah God? And as mothers, we pray for our children, and we sense the weakness of our own prayers. So much that's missing, so much that's lacking. But You know who doesn't lack in his prayers? That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and fills in what's missing and brings it to the Father. And that's the testimony of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Pray in conscious dependence in the Holy Spirit And then, in the third place, keeping ourselves in the love of God, building ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and then verse 21, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that this is what it looks like in our lives, that we have that earnest expectation And that longing in our hearts for the mercy of Jesus Christ, especially at his second coming. But the figure here is is one who's waiting expectantly for the return of a loved one. So it might be a newly married couple and the husband has to go away. He's gone for a while. Wife doesn't know when when he's going to be back. But she's standing there by the living room window, in the late evening hours, looking out, waiting, watching, returning, expectantly, longing for the return of her loved one. We too look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ earnestly and expectantly. And it's not as if it's a long ways away. We have the beginning of that now. We uh, The love and the compassion that God has For us now in our hearts whereby we know that we are the children of God. And then we look expectantly for the full realization of that mercy as you and I will one day experience it in heaven. And in the way of longing for that mercy of Jesus Christ, God keeps us in the proper frame of mind. And that's a way that God uses to keep us in the experience of his love for us. And that's our calling, especially as we prepare ourselves to come to the table of the Lord next week, that this is going to be how we prepare ourselves, to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, to pray in the Holy Spirit, and to look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as we'll see it and taste it next week in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And now the text ends on a, on a very high and lofty note of hope and comfort. When it says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life that's very comforting for us and this stands in contrast with what the unrighteous may expect and we already know from Jude what the unrighteous may expect that's earlier from the verses here in the book of Jude you look at the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness You look at the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to them. You look at the angels who fell from their first estate and then you read of the end of these ungodly men who have crept into the church from verse 13, the the judgment of God for them to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, the condemnation of eternal hell. But to us who are God's children, we may expect eternal life. And that's an eternal life that we have right now. That's the life of, uh, of God's love in us right now. So that God loves us and he regenerates us so that we live And every time we see that regenerated life in us, we are assured all the more of God's love for me. And when we do sin, and when we confess those sins, I'm sorry for my sins. I don't want to sin anymore. I look forward to glory when there will be no more sin. And all of these are evidences to you and to me that we are in the love of God and that we have a beginning of that eternal life even now. That it'll be a life perfected in heavenly glory, reserved for us in the new heavens and the new earth, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away. And so, beloved congregation, we have the most precious love of God Unto us. Evidenced in that God withheld not his only begotten son. Therefore in the midst of all of the attacks that we face. That would rob us of the assurance of God's love for us. Remember that God keeps you in his love. And that now sovereignly. He moves you and calls you and makes you willing and obedient to keep yourselves in the love of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word, bless it to our hearts, and that in this week we may properly examine ourselves. But Father, preserve us Strengthen us for our Christian calling and give us strength to build ourselves up on our most holy faith and to look expectantly to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Forgive our sins and pardon all our iniquities. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.